Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 22nd, 2012, and my guest is Eugene White of Rutgers University. Eugene, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Our topic for today is banking regulation, and in particular, we're going to draw on your recent paper, Rethinking the Regulation of Banking, Choices or Incentives. Uh, what do you mean by the title of the paper? What do you mean by choices or incentives? Well, I meant to distinguish between two approaches to how you regulate banks. Uh, banks uh, are institutions which we really create. We give them certain privileges, and uh, we retain the right to regulate them. However, the dominant means of regulating them uh, for most of the past uh, century has been to tell them what they can and cannot do, to regulate their choices, say you can invest in this or you can't invest in that, or you must make this type of loan. What I'm suggesting here is that there's another approach to doing that, and that is instead of telling people what the choices they should be making, or the bankers what they should be making, they should be giving the proper incentives for them to do so. That is, giving them the incentives to make the right choices rather than telling them what the choices are. Uh, that seems like a, a very good idea. I mean, one of the stranger parts of the current mess we're in is the role that leverage played. And... There's a debate, I think mainly a confusion, not so much a debate, about how much leverage was allowed to be used by certain types of banks. And some people have pointed to a 2004 change in regulation, which turns out, I, as far as I can tell, only affected the uh, brokerage side of, of banks, not the bank holding side. And so it didn't wasn't nearly as important as people point to. But the intellectual part of that discussion, which I find strange, is the implication that if leverage was allowed to be 40 to 1, say, uh, then it would be 40 to 1, uh, that there was no natural restraint on the incentives that banks had to be leveraged or, more importantly, on their creditors uh, to lend them – continue to lend them money as their portfolios got more risky. No, I think that's, I think that's right. And – you would say there's no natural restraint. Well, the restraint would be if, because of that leverage, the individuals choosing that that level of leverage would then bear some penalty for it. Normally, it, appears, it raises your risk of becoming bankrupt or insolvent, which means that usually people wouldn't lend to you. The fact that they continued to lend to these institutions, to me, right. suggests the role of, uh, that moral hazard played in, in the crisis. Right. That's the other side of it, is that, that in fact, we've basically had a strong tendency to ensure risks. So you, there are two, sort of two parts to the problem is, one is that we haven't given managers, stockholders uh, the right incentives, but we also haven't given depositors or lenders the right kinds of incentives. And in fact, sometimes they're very confused. People don't quite know what their liability is in all this. What do you think the um, role of moral hazard was in the crisis? Well, I think moral hazard played a big role, but I think I would take it one step back, back one step further, is that uh, we've, uh, there are different, for any type of financial institution, there are all people who have an interest in the institution. We like to call them usually stakeholders. There are depositors, other lenders, uh, there are managers, there are shareholders, and the directors which represent the shareholders. And the problem is, is that many of these parties don't actively, aren't working as hard as they should be to ensure that the institutions don't take too much risk. Part of that is because the, uh, we'll say the managers or directors don't bear a lot of risk if the institution fails to the, for themselves, that is, they've taken certain risky decisions. And the other is that we've provided various kinds of insurance to all the other lenders so that they don't pay uh, is not enough attention. They don't so face any the downside. You know, if you had to ask any depositor who held 
50,000, 100,000, 200. We had a limit of deposit insurance of $100,000. But many people who had 200,000 or $300,000 in the bank never would, would never even think of running on the bank because there's an implicit insurance. They believe the government won't allow the institution to fail, so why should they seek out a safer institution? That is, allows the firm to take more leverage. And isn't it true that in the savings and loan crisis, in the aftermath of the SNL crisis, that large depositors who were above the FDIC limit were reimbursed anyway? Yes, that's true. I and think in fact, almost every one of them. We raised the limit from 100 to 250,000 during the crisis, and we extended it to money market mutual funds. So <laughs> it's much broader, broader than is oftentimes made explicit. Yeah. So uh, what incentives then, since your suggestion is that we ought to regulate choices less and incentives more, why what are, let's talk a little more depth about the incentives facing. We, we're right now, we've just talked about the incentives facing creditors, obviously depositors. Right. Obviously, a depositor who has under 100000 or under 250000 doesn't think for a second about whether the bank they're depositing their money in is a good, solvent, likely solvent bank. They just look at the rate of interest being paid and go to the highest one. Right. Um, what, what about the executives in the banks, uh, the decision makers on the ground? Well, uh, it's – there's, it, things have really changed quite a bit. It's, uh, one of the things I like to do in my own research is I look back in time and look back to the 19th century, mm-hmm. and there you can see a very different sort of regime uh, which existed, is that uh, managers, and we'll say the president of, an, of a uh, uh, bank or the chief financial officer or even the directors, had a lot more of their interest tied to the institution. Skin in the many game. Of, many of them... Uh, had significant exposure in terms of stock, but also sometimes had to post performance bonds. Explain that. Well, they, uh, for instance, that's, would, I, I was shocked to read that. That was amazing. <laughs> so that, uh, for, consider the chief financial officer, which in those days would have had a simple tighter, title, simpler title of cashier. Uh, we've tended to inflate titles yeah, quite a bit. Less impressive. But the, the cashier of the bank <laughs> uh, was the second most important individual. And uh, frequently, they would ask to be post a bond equal to one, two, or three-year times their salary. And the idea there is if the bank got into trouble or it failed as a, respond, as a result of some mismanagement by that, that bond would be forfeit. Tying Which is it, a strong, strong incentive yeah. for them to make sure that they don't take too much risk. Now, that was, a, that was law, correct? Uh, no, that was, was not that, law. Or that, was that market? That was the market driving that primarily. Because that, uh, that would encourage confidence um, that the cashier sure. would keep an eye on things. Um, who else was doing that kind of bond posting? Um, well, that, that's, a, that's a fairly – even the regulatory agencies would sometimes do that as well. Um, and it, I, I can't give you a precise date as when they stopped doing it, but it was certainly true in the 19th century that the federal regulators had to post a performance bond as well. The regulators? Uh, yes. Sometimes would have to. And that. where would the bond be held? Where would um, that money go? Who was, hold, who was, who was keeping an eye on it, that? Well, we don't know much about how the system operated, but it uh, it might have been held with the Treasury. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, it, a lot of these are not very carefully specified, so it's not certain whether it was held by the government or by some private agency. These mm-hmm. are a lot of the dark corners of which we don't know too much about in this period. Except the reason where this information comes out is in terms of bank examination, when the regulators would go in and see how what the performance of an institution was like and would examine, examine it and report back all these issues. So you might say, well, suppose a bank failed in this period. This is the period I'm talking about from after the Civil War up to World War I. If a bank failed, what would happen? What ha- and to understand the dynamics of this is that the li- what I call the liability regime differed, and the most important difference was that they had double liability. What this means is that anyone who held a share of stock – if that bank failed, the receivers for that bank... The creditors. Would, the, uh, well, the receiver, the person who's managing the closure of the bank, okay. would have the right to go back to every shareholder and ask for a contribution to pay out all the uh, creditors 
equal to the par value of the stock. So if I have a million dollars worth of stock in a bank, I was liable for up to a million dollars of the losses. Let's say that you'd bought you'd bought the stock when it came out, and uh, you bought a million dollars worth of stock. The price might go up or down, but you'd be liable for that original million. Oh, so it's oh the par value means what it was what it came out at what you paid what for it came it. out at that's right. Uh, so what would happen is that. Uh, every shareholder would be a little bit more nervous because you might buy your stock, but you better pay attention because it's not just the money you originally put out. It's that you may come back and have to fork over more money. Now that was a regulation, correct? That was a regulation that was stipulated in the, in the law. And they did go after the shareholders to do this. What this meant was that the shareholders spent a lot more time paying attention to the management. You think? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I guess you would. Yes. Not very happy. And we know that they must have done so because it was, mu- it was actually – we know that the bank failures were occurred, but what were much more common is for the shareholders and directors to close down a bank which wasn't doing well. That is, you didn't allow a bank to go on and on over the edge, but you closed it down before it went over the edge. And that means that they're, you know, the bank, if the bank was not doing very well, you didn't you – didn't, push it to be more risky. <laughs> yeah, unlike In fact, the, yeah. you stopped. Right, and it's, you know, this it's a fascinating example given in the recent crisis when people talk about turning points when some a bank could have made a different decision such as Lehman Brothers after the situation with Bear Stearns, right? They could have been a little more prudent and said they continued doing business as usual. Uh, that would sober you up. That that idea that you were at risk. Sure. I mean, it's a very different than the SNL crisis in the 1980s, which is really can think of as a completed disaster episode, where when the SNL savings and loans, these you know, basically had been traditionally very conservative uh, institutions, which took savings deposits and made home uh, made mortgage loans, <clears throat> when they became insolvent institutions basically in the very late 1970s, the reaction in Congress, really in response to a lot of special interest groups, was to not close them all down and absorb the, the, lo- the large losses, but to erase the level of deposit insurance, keep people in, and then give them new lending powers to take more risk. Well, hoping, hoping you know, at least in principle, that they could recover from the That's problem. right. So kind of like you Greece. recover. It's just like a gambler <laughs> saying, "Okay." <laughs> it's like the house at a, at a casino saying, "All right, you owe us. You you owe us now. I don't know, twenty five million. That's okay. We're going to let you gamble again. Yeah, because <laughs> and you, we're going to hey, let you take greater odds. Because at the you roulette wheel, back, you put yep. twenty five million on black. You might, if it comes up black, you're back in the clear. Yep, that's right. <laughs> And instead, you end up owing $100 million. Yeah, which wasn't, doesn't naturally follow, though, as we've talked about in here and in, uh, with William Black and, and the work of Akerlof and Romer. The problem isn't so much that that's inherently a bad idea, though it probably is, but that once you do that, the incentives to um, take more risk rather than less is, is, is really not, is not so healthy. Sure. And also, too, if, uh, if as part of that risk, if you suppose you win that bet, you save the institution, <clears throat> but typically because managers' uh, pay is tied to their performance, they will get a big kick in salary. But if they fail, you know, if the institution failed <clears throat> when it was already a little bit insolvent, they wouldn't have any loss. In other words, there's no loss they incur by taking more risk. Right, they just push out the right-hand side tail. The left-hand side tail That's is truncated right. at zero. Sure. Uh, I guess the um, the question that some people would ask is, and I've been asked this myself a number of times. Uh, I have an answer. I'd like to hear yours. Um, you could argue that the CEOs of the past, cr- the recent crisis, particularly Richard Fold of Lehman and Jimmy Kane of Bear Stearns, well, they had a lot of skin in the game. They were stockholders. They got they lost about a billion dollars of on paper from their uh, depreciation of their the value of their companies. 
surely they had the right incentives to act already. We don't need any – you're talking about how we'd use incentives and rather regulating choices. Didn't they have lots of incentives to perform prudently? Uh, well, they did have lots of incentives. <clears throat> I guess part of the part of the question is whether – I mean, <clears throat> you can have losses. Were they wiped out as a result of no, this? No, they cleared about $500 million each is what they were – a mere $500 million is what they were left with. Well, see, I, it, <laughs> it, one doesn't want to <clears throat> sort of judge, have some absolute level judgment, but that doesn't sound like uh, <clears throat> a. I mean, that doesn't sound like a huge penalty. No, it doesn't. In uh, you know, uh, as one of my friends would say, that's already rich beyond your wildest dreams. Sure. You, uh, I guess, you could say perhaps. They're not anymore in the billionaire's ring. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But uh, that doesn't uh, deprive you from being in the top one-tenth of one percent of the wealthiest in in some sense. And certainly that – I think if you were to have posed this question to a 19th century banker, even J.P. Morgan, he would have been shocked (laughs) uh, to see this – things like this happening. My claim is that – their um, risk taking before the collapse, which might have turned out well, they didn't. They didn't deliberately plan to destroy yeah. the bank. Uh, no. Jamie Dimon did similar things. He turned out fine. He got to keep his one point five billion or whatever he's left with. Uh, but in the meanwhile, while the stock was going up and down, they were buying it and then selling it and uh, pocketing the profits. And they weren't stupid. They didn't put all their eggs in one basket. They put their money elsewhere so that they were left with five hundred million. Now, Stephen Kaplan, who I interviewed uh, on this issue, his claim is that that's wrong. They sold and bought stock. They sold their stock along the way, not to pocket the gains uh, from their aggressive risk taking, but just to pay off taxes and other things. I think that's an open, an open question. I think um, uh, Lucien Bebchuk has has claimed otherwise. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I'm still uh, open minded. Well, about. these are these are very. I mean. The financial collapse is always incredibly messy, and it's very difficult from looking at single examples to see what happens. Um, One of the things I think for, and and especially when it happens industry and economy-wide, it's hard to separate out what's a a broad, or we call a systemic shock, uh, from the individual actions of, you know, who was a virtuous manager and who was a risky, you know, a, a, we'll say an unvirtuous manager taking sure. more than appropriate risks. I mean, I think in some sense, we oftentimes would, would like to isolate things. And I often, I think the case of MF Global is very interesting to look at because that's a specific firm, but clearly one which took enormous risks. Well, using your customer's money, which has been alleged, is, is a special kind of risk. It's called fraud. Uh, that That's really... <clears throat> Uh, or right, larceny. but the that, interesting thing question is, it, yeah. Um, uh, yes, it, well, actually, it's it's not a law, as, as I understand as well, it's not a law that you segregate these, is this really? just best best practice? Really? Um, and, uh, I mean, I, this is the problem, I think, is that I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable about this, but there was supposed to be a bright line dividing this. I think it's a law, but we'll we'll find out. We'll, we'll I, I find suspect. out about that one. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, it doesn't appear that the senior, <laughs> the man in charge, bears any liability for this. Yeah. He's the one. This is Mr. Corzine who took over the firm and said, "All right, we're going to make lots of money. We're going to make lots of money by 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 uh, proprietary trading." And. Uh, Yet, you know, he looks in Askins now and says, well, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't know how we got this. And I think that's the kind of disturbing thing, is that if you're the CEO of a firm and you are uh, pushing the firm to earn, you know, big returns for all your shareholders and for you, what uh, you must know that something, some wheels are turning underneath you. You think so? That. Well, you think so, yeah. And uh, you know, I I would find it disturbing to, to find that there are all the customer losses and that you know the senior executives don't bear any responsibility for that. 
And I think that's part of the misalignment of the sentence. That's not to pass any judgment on a case where we don't know all the facts yet, but it is one which should make us ask certain types of questions. Yeah, I agree. Now, let's contrast uh, past uh, the past regulations of the late 19th century, which you talk about, and we've touched on with, uh, to me, there's sort of this continuum and we go from, you know, one extreme to the other. The late 19th century shareholders uh, not only had the risk that their firms would go out of business, which would wipe out the value of their shares, but if that happened, they were potentially at risk for additional monies, is what you're saying. Right. We go to the current situation where shareholders don't bear any additional risk. They do risk being wiped out. Some shareholders can buy and sell along the way, of course, and make a great deal of money. Right. Uh, and I guess the uh, other point that you make, which I think has been under-discussed, is the change on Wall Street, and now we're talking about investment banks, not commercial banks, but investment banks from partnerships to publicly traded companies. So starting about 15 years ago, 18 years ago, uh, virtually every bank, investment bank on Wall Street, which was a partnership, became publicly traded. The last one, I think, was Goldman Sachs, but they're all publicly traded now. And in the old, old days, meaning 18 to 20 years ago, there was no way that that partnership would use the leverage that the publicly traded companies used, putting the partner's nest egg at risk. That's right. That's right. So explain that, and then why did that change? Well, or what do you think? Why um, do you think it changed? This is one of these uh, contributing factors to the uh, to the boom and bust, which is a little bit hard to tease out because it's one of these slow changes which happens over time and mm -hmm. gains speed. But you're right. About 15 years ago, almost all uh, big Wall Street investment banks were partnerships. And in that respect, each of these partners had a huge amount of their capital, most of their capital tied up within the firm. So the firm went under, basically they lost most of their wealth. But along the way, and I forget which firm went first um, in, in, uh, in switching, but when one, when one of these firms went public, the partners got stock and the initial incentive is that, well, if you have stock, you should diversify so that uh, they were able to move some of their capital slowly out of the firm. They're sold to the public. They're, there's a considerable benefit to that. But then uh, what happens? Uh, the public firm can become more leveraged. It can borrow more and take more risk. Get dramatically larger. Yeah, get, get, become a bigger firm. And that's a threat to other firms. Because it's bigger, it can take more risk. It can pay higher salaries to any, any of the uh, star, anyone from the stars down to their staff, and that can detract the best people of that firm. That's going to drive the other firms, to, the other investment banks, to do the same thing, to go public. So there's a, a dynamic pushing the whole industry that way. Well, it raises the question, though, and this has come to, to – into the news because of the recent uh, piece by Greg Smith, who resigned as vice presidency right. at Goldman Sachs and says, they, you know, I was disgusted. They treat uh, their clients like dirt. They make f their customers. They treat them. They make call them names. And I don't we don't know how much of that's true. Right. It, it, it's an interesting pr provocative well, piece. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it, but it follows it, from a long literature <laughs> about the misbehavior of young men in investment banks. Yeah, right. That's right. But but part of the the mystery of that, you know, a lot of people on the left and the right both loved this um, piece and hated it for a whole bunch of interesting reasons. But one of the things that no one really paid much attention to is, you know, if you treat your customers like dirt, uh, usually you have trouble keeping. In most industries, you have trouble keeping your customers. So what's going on in this business? that makes it possible. So you start talking about the competitive pressure to leverage up and get bigger and take more risk. But, you know, hey, wouldn't people say, I don't want to be part of this. I'd rather be in this nice, safe partnership with somebody I trust and like rather than these gunslingers. So sure. what, what was going on there, you think? Well, I mean, there's, 
one would think one would one would hope that there would be a clear distinction between the two types of firms but you know some of the firms which are i mean goldman was earning its customers uh some of its customers uh doing doing them well, doing well by them uh, evidently because they uh, and well here's the thing in a boom a boom lifts all ships yeah so maybe you are doing this but but you know the customers don't perceive that they might be doing better uh, that's the, I suppose, the rub. But traditionally, uh, investment banks did worry more about reputation, did worry more about their customers and their links to them. Uh, this is uh, certainly true in the great tradition of, of J.P. Morgan, who worried a great deal about making sure that his customers would, they would be presenting good deals to them in terms of buying stocks or bonds. And I remember reading this one great history of Lazard Frere, which at one time was a top investment bank. And it's almost astonishing. And this is talking about the 1950s, 1960s, again, some time ago. But it's kind of astonishing to read that the head of uh, the company didn't want to have a new building, didn't hmm. want on any frills, because he thought customers would believe that he would, was uh, get being paid too much and misspending their money. Yeah, interesting. And we we could have gasped, gasped at reading that because <laughs> yeah. somehow that's been transformed to if you have a bright new shiny building, you must be earning a lot of money. We can do well for you. Yeah. But I always think that when you see a firm erecting a new giant skyscraper, uh, you know, luxurious one, you should ask the question of <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, where's my money going? Well, and then to make a case in point, Northern Rock, we just moved to England built a great new headquarters just before its collapse. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's what I would say is one of the signs, one, one potential sign of some problem. So my, my story, which is, you know, I'm kind of stuck with, I really like it. So I, I'm always aware that <laughs> I may be um, cherry picking the things that confirm it and ignoring the things that don't. But isn't it... Um, in correlation, it's not causation, but it, it seems striking that this move to, away from partnerships to publicly traded companies, which is which results in a massive growth in, in size in these firms, hmm. would seem to it, it correlates with the beginning of the the middle of the too big to fail era, where it suddenly became easier to attract borrowed funds from people because the government had gotten into the habit of compensating. Creditors, hundred cents on the dollar. Uh, I seem to be. I don't know if anybody's done any work on that. Uh, it's just a thought. Well, no, but there, there. These are. I mean, these two trends. I think merge. And if you look at the, if you say, well, why don't we have double liability anymore? And it turns out the answer is really the Great Depression, where, again, you have a systemic or a broad wide shock, and it's very difficult to collect from anybody money to pay out depositors. There's a new idea for deposit insurance. So at the same time as they introduce FDIC insurance, they cancel out double liability. Oh, interesting. FDIC insurance starts out as a very limited program, as a, with the idea is being a mutual fund where the banks will pay in and they'll pay out for bank failures, but not directly impinging upon the government. Well, what, is, what, what, does, that, happens, what course, does that mean? Well, that means that it basically it's like an insurance pool, so that uh, if a bank, if bank, oh, you mean if not, bank, not requiring government funds, it's going to come no, out. No, of the, not requiring government funds. Yeah, but there is a slow creep, and if you look between 1934 and even up to 1980, the levels of deposit insurance creep up. People get better at splitting their accounts and moving them from bank to bank, and. Once you've insured commercial banks, there's pressure. You're going to insure savings banks and all kinds of other types of intermediaries. So we tend to, there's been a broad movement and it's a, a push, not just by the public, but also by the institutions who have to compete because you don't want to compete with a rival institution which is insured. So there's a general, I would say, spread of this idea of liability insurance. Yeah, uh, and that's very hard to to shift back. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about a, a wider range of political economy. Uh, and let's go back to the 19th century 
uh, which I know you've written about. The 19th century, I think the sort of casual history of the era in the eye or mind of the layperson is, well, the 19th century, that was a terrible time. We had a lot of bank runs. We had all these panics. Uh, so obviously, these kind of incentives that you're talking about, they didn't work very well. And it was a huge mistake. And finally, we got out of that era, with, fortunately, with the Great Depression. It was, a, it was a tough price to pay. But mercifully, we got a different regulatory uh, world. And look how good it worked. It, it, it you know, until – and now I'm, I'm channeling the, a certain style of critique. Sure. You know, until, until Glass-Steagall was repealed, you know, this was great. Uh, we had a good 60-year run, which isn't bad. Um, what's your take on that? You know, 19th century bad, 20th well, century good. Okay, so, so if we say that, say, all right, well, let's look at the big picture. What was growth of the economy like back uh, in the late 19th century? It's actually pretty good. It's a period of rapid growth. So the whole economy is growing fairly rapidly. Okay? Yep. They do have recessions. Okay. Uh, Occasional but, depression. 1894 was a really bad. Yeah, but this, this is is probably more in line with what we call a long recession. Okay. Uh, and, and in the sense of the recession, there's uh, we, we business cycles are a natural phenomena. They occur. Now it is true that there were uh, runs on banks and panics, and it appears that the panics tended to amplify the depth and duration of a recession. Yeah. This seems fairly well established. And now, for those for the, those who who've forgotten, there there was no Federal Reserve until 1913. There's no Federal Reserve until 1914. So this is a system where you don't have uh, a central bank operating. So no lender of last resort. The only thing, if it, if it was if the panic was bad enough, the banks simply closed their doors and restricted payments until everyone calmed down, which is a very extreme. Yeah. <laughs> but we know that panics tended to make these recessions worse. The question is, what's driving the panics? And there really are two factors which are underlying these panics. The panics are much more frequent, and bank runs are much more frequent in the U.S. than they are in, say, Canada or Britain or France, whatever you know, economy which was uh, at the same, roughly the same level of development. That's because we're more nervous people. No, no, not at all. It's no? because we impose certain so what, <laughs> a particular set of regulations is that we prohibited branching. So we have tons of small, undiversified institutions. So you might have a bank out in Kansas in a small community. It has no branches, but it lends mostly to wheat farmers. It has the wheat farmers' deposits. If there's a drop in the price of wheat, you can have people withdrawing funds and failing to pay on loans, and the bank can fail. Given that all the banks are tied together through having to clear checks and everything else, one bank oftentimes can move to other banks engaged in the wheat business or refining business, and you can have a panic. So with this fragmented banking system, you made panics more likely. That's factor one. Factor two is you don't have a central bank to provide liquidity. So with the two of these, we would sometimes have these very large panics, which would spread. Now, Canada at the time had no central bank, but it had a nationwide branching system, and it did not have the same problem. It didn't have these very frequent panics. So that's really kind of the root cause, and what's always important is to make sure <laughs> you don't misidentify the cause when you're seeking a remedy. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so what my question would be, and, and George Selgin talked about this, I think, in his podcast as well, so we'll put a link up to that. People want to go back and, and look at that in more detail, but... It raises the question, okay, that, that's a, I think that's clearly a big part of the reason we had, say, more runs and panics in the United States than we had in Canada. Why do we have that silly law? And why did Canada have such a good law? Well, uh, if that's this, correct. Is probably, this is probably the result of what we might call the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, early on, in the very early 19th century, many banks had, might have no branches or one or two. Not that many, because given the state of technology, you didn't necessarily do that. In the U.S., they were very concerned. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain why they sometimes, you know, the, why you get a particular regulation. In the U.S., the National Banking Act of 1864 specified that the major activities of the bank be conducted in its, in its, uh, in its office. 
And it seems to be the purpose behind that was to make sure that when an examiner came, he would have all the documents there. They wouldn't be moved around from branch to branch. Okay. Because there's no telephone, no real good telegraph to follow all that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, once you get that law in place and you have single office banks, a person saying, well, we can manage a branching bank. We can manage examination of a branching bank. We can do that. Well, then that bank is larger and may have some economies of scale, may be able to drive the small unit bank offices out of business. And they, they resent that and then resist. So that's what we really had was a system where we created, not really realizing what was, <clears throat> what was going to happen, a very strong lobby of single office banks which resisted branching. And we know this because the U.S. is really one of the last countries ever to have nationwide branching. We only actually get that in 1997. It takes a long time it's for us late. to reach that point. It's yeah. a little late. It's, well, yeah, it takes basically a century later. Yeah, it's a little slow. The wheels of progress turn slowly. I right. remember uh, I went to school in Chicago and uh, Illinois, or maybe Chicago, I think it was Illinois. You couldn't, there were no branches in... Whole state of Illinois. Yeah. Uh, so uh, your bank was... It had, uh, I think they could have a branch within something like uh, 500 yards or some. So my bank had had a branch. It was <laughs> just a nearby storefront. That, you know, for some people, it was a little more convenient. Oh, sure. It, exactly like that. And every state, the effort to do this, they might begrudgingly allow them to have that. Or New Jersey, uh, for example, when they allowed it, they said, all right, we'll allow you to branch. We're going to cut the state into three zones, and you can only branch in your zone. Mm -hmm. I mean, things which today sound really pretty silly because we want to, if, I, if I'm traveling from, from uh, New Jersey to California, I might want to access my bank there from an automatic teller or whatever. Yeah. Um, so this is one of these regulations which really, I would say, weakened the U.S. system for, profoundly for a very long period of time and really was, in, in many ways, contributed, for instance, to the collapse of the Great Depression as well, because it's still many small banks, yeah. which were not robust. Yeah. Uh, how does that political economy of the power of these small banks play out in the creation of the Fed? Uh, well, <laughs> it has a big influence on the creation of the Fed. Because most people think the Fed was created to prevent banking panics. Well, uh, but you the could Fed... Argue, but yeah, the Fed's, Fed's job was, certainly was aimed at, at, uh, at preventing panics. And it, it satisfied, one, is it allowed it an ability to provide liquidity, but it didn't change the branching requirements. But given that um, it, the, the unit banks had a profound influence on the shaping of the Fed, because with all those, in, in 1914, there were probably, there were well over 15,000 small banks. Many of them are very nervous about the idea of having one central bank. And uh, they're kind of sold the idea that they're going to have 12, which are similar to 12 regional uh, banks, which are uh, central banks, which are going to look like clearinghouses, which are going to help them clear and process their checks, which they like, and which will have an opportunity to provide them with credit. Say, okay, that's a good idea. So the, our decentralized system is really a reflection of this um, unit banking system, uh, much more than anything else. It's bizarre. So all, the, all, all, the, all the regional feds really owe their existence to that. And, of course, if we imagined a different world today, which you and I are able to do because that's sort of what economists do, right? We kind of mm, right. say, uh, wouldn't it be great if these were the incentives – uh, given the p entrenched uh, winners of the current system, the beneficiaries, whether it's by design, whether it is merely an emergent phenomenon, or whether it's an accident, a pure just kind of a side note of some other attention, uh, do you think there's much prospect for doing anything differently than we're currently doing? In other words, uh. let, 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 me ask it, let me ask it a different way. Question, question number one. If you had your druthers, if you were in charge, what would you do? And then secondly, why isn't it going to happen? Because I don't think, whatever you say, I don't think it's going to happen. Ah, <laughs> so, uh, so if I were able to, be, as economists will say, if I were able to be, you know, the, uh, well, they'd say social dictator, the person able to redesign yeah. everything, how would you do that? 
Um, and uh, I'm looking actually here for one second to give you a quote, which I think is actually pretty. While you uh, look for it, well, while you look for it, I'll I'll tell you my version of this. I was once asked by a reporter, if you were president for the day, what would you do about X? Using your skills as an economist, and I said, well, if I were president. I wouldn't be an economist anymore. I'd be a politician, and I'd do what politicians do. Why would you think I'd do like, act like an economist? Right. Uh, it's the way of the world. People respond to the incentives usually of the job. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, of course, I, I, I wouldn't find it. But there, if you go in, if you, you enter into the Federal Reserve, there are two bronze panels, one uh, with a, with a uh, relief uh, uh, profile of Woodrow Wilson, the other of Senator Glass. And the quote underneath uh, Wilson's says, basically, we can't start with a blank piece of paper but uh, if we're going to improve our financial system, but we can take it step by step to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very interesting quote because that's a very hopeful one. Yes, it is. It says, However, we, can't do, we can't get it all done today or tomorrow, but we'll, we'll, we'll get in the car and we'll head in the right direction. The problem is, that most of the time what we've done is we've tended to layer, add one layer of regulation on top of another. Yeah. We've not done what he's said we could do or should do. <clears throat> and that's part of the problem. Uh, and that's why when you look at current legislation, it really, it, it may deal with a few of the problems, but far from all of them. And it may add additional problems. The hard part for economists is there's so many different constraints and regulations, it's hard to say what the outcome is because it's not a simple model where you have one imperfection or one regulation. You have thousands. Yeah, it's not like you make something more expensive, it's easy to predict people do less of it. We're good at that, but you're right. When there's all these interacting, interlocking uh, effects, it's almost impossible. It's, It's impossible, and we can take it in the discussion about how to implement Frank Dodd, this all comes to the fore, and as a result, you know, huge controversy about regulations and what their effect will be. Yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> now, say if if I could advise some country with just a starting out, what would I do? Well, I would set up uh, a system which had relatively minimal regulation, but um, uh, set up the right kinds of incentives so that depositors shareholders, directors, and managers all behaved, it all had their interests properly aligned. Of course, that's that easy. wouldn't mean that they would ever take any, they would take zero losses, but the losses, the risks they would, <laughs> the incentives would be aligned with the risks they take. So it's easy. And that's to, a very, that's a very, I, I have to apologize because that's not a specific policy recommendation, but it's one of a general uh, approach to design. Yeah, I understand, but it's, it's, uh it's uh, it's not so helpful, okay. No. <laughs> I need I, I need I need a little bit of help. So, if um, you know, you can't uh, can't just say, well, I'd create a world where people would be be encouraged to do the right thing on their own. So we wouldn't need much regulation. The question is, is there a way to do that? And, I mean, to me, the obvious way to do it is to tell them you're on your own, uh, depositors, you're on your own. Right. Uh, there's no federal insurance. Uh, there's no central bank. There's no lender of last resort. There's no backstop. There's no do-overs. There's no uh, sub- subsidies to irresponsibility. Now, the claim is is that we can't do that. I mean, that's out of the question because, you know, when push comes to shove, we'll always bail out the losers because it's just too expensive. Well, that's the claim. I don't know if it's true. Well, I think the problem with just saying everyone's on their own is the problem that there's asymmetric information. If everyone had perfect information – well, then you really wouldn't need banks even because then I would know immediately who to lend to. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't need anyone to intermediate that, but I can't. I have, a, you need people who specialize. Correct. That's, a, that's unrealistic to have perfect information. I don't, I don't assume that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is then once, I, once you create, allow someone to say a bank and they take my funds, it's hard for me to monitor the bank. Right. Because there's some information they might be willing to, or induced to – to disclose, but there's a lot of proprietary information. So then you get to fall back on reputation, disclosure and reputation. And I think there is always some role for um, government in setting up the rules under which these institutions will operate. Um, 
and setting common standards because you don't you don't want each bank having their own accounting rules well, <laughs> because it's impossible to make distinguish it, between them. That would make it expensive, but that it's, would make it very expensive. So you have to and and so there every. I mean, in some sense, the evolution of regulation is part of the natural process. The problem is trying to get, get each point, each part in, to play its appropriate role. And I think that's the trick. And we've gone way too far. And we expect too much from the regulatory authorities in solving the system. The problem, Which is and, surprising, don't you think? Given their track record, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm not being silly. I think it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. You know, it's reflected in the Rogoff and Reinhardt title. This time is different. Uh, you know, the implication is is that well, we, now we've learned. Okay, we didn't know before, but now we figured it out. It's remarkable that we have this. What, do you, what would you call it? Naivete, idealism, foolishness. Well, there, is, there is a little bit of disconnect because if. Uh, if a bank fails and I'm bailed out, I ultimately, as a taxpayer, have to pay the bill in some sense. Right. And uh, that's something people, people don't connect those two halves necessarily. Well, it started too but, lately. I think they've kind of caught on. I mean, one of the virtues of the current mess we're in is it, it has raised people's consciousness rather dramatically yeah. about the nature of the games that are be, the rules of the game. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a very good thing. I think it's a very good thing. Uh, but the problem is, again, in the political system, then the general public, which the general taxpayer, has to contend with the special interest who still wishes more, to retain those pr- privileges. And has, so a little more of an, and has a little more of an incentive to be paying attention day to day. Sure, um, absolutely. What about the Fed? Would you, would you, um, would you do anything to the Fed? <laughs> or do you like the way it's constituted? Uh, what incentives, or another way to ask it, what incentives does the Fed face? Well... Uh, there's, I think what I'd do is I'd, I'd focus, there are two tasks the Fed has. They have uh, monetary stability and financial stability. Yeah. And uh, I'll focus on the financial stability part uh, because that's, in a sense, in a sense, I think the Fed's done reasonably well, reasonably well in terms of maintaining price stability in the country. Uh, I mean, we've had a period of, I mean, not not much inflation, no deflation for quite a period of time. The real problem appears to be in the financial stability side. And uh, there's a big problem which we face because the authority for financial stability is broken into many, many agencies, each of which is funded differently, each of which has different incentives, and each of which fights for its its position. And as a result, you get often to have what we call regulatory arbitrage, which is where financial institutions seek the weakest regulator. Yep. And so you have competition among the regulators, and this is very, it, it's very destructive and very weakening. Children understand so this when they're negotiating. What we really need to do in, in some sense, and this is, again, unlikely to happen without a profound change, is to uh, move more towards a system where we have a constant, a, move all these agencies into one. We don't need to have many different types of, we don't need a regulator for every, every type of a financial institution. This is one of the ways we got into trouble on multiple occasions. Yeah, I was just going to say. The Fed is just, and the Fed is just one of those regulators. Yeah, I was just going to say that children understand regulatory arbitrage. You know, if if if, if, <laughs> they if, the sure dad, do. if the dad says no, they ask the mom. You know, they, and right. they don't tell the mom often that they've already asked the dad. And when they right. do it, and the dad says, "Hey, I told you not to." We say, "Well, mom, let me." Mom said it was okay. Yeah, it's the so same right, idea. Exactly. Same exactly idea. the same idea. And uh, this is this is a, a major problem. When I think it, when I talk about this, I'm thinking of what I call the spaghetti diagram. There's mm-hmm. in many different locations they have. A, there's a, a, a picture of all the agencies and all the institutions and the lines of authority between the two of them, and it just looks like a plate of spaghetti. Well, th- uh, there is a temptation to say the more the better, because that way at least someone will be looking out. Um, that, that <laughs> I would say that that's a, a very naively hopeful view. Yeah, well, the incentives uh, to look out are not very big when there's lots of you, because you can say right. someone and, else is supposed to do it. And... If we take the case of the Securities Exchange Commission, which 
Uh, I'm going to say that that I think that you know the agencies are staffed with uh, honest and hardworking people, but no it doubt. depends on how you the tasks you give them and the funding you give them. And we know that before the crisis, that some of the agencies were starved for funds. And uh, you know, I won't. We, we'd have to take a close look at the numbers, but it's not surprising that sometimes some uh, that, for instance, the SEC. We know that's been subject to uh, you know budgetary cuts at various times, usually before a crisis. And then people say, "Well, gee, you didn't go out and catch the crooks." Right. So there's. Uh, they're subject to a lot of these political constraints. So let, let me ask you about, you know, we could talk about these desirable worlds versus the world we live in. And that, you know, that's nice. A lot, but a lot of the time when, when you push seriously, these kind of changes that you and I probably would rather see these <laughs> reductions in guarantees, reductions in backstops, more incentives for executives and, risk takers to be prudent through their own incentives rather than outside monitoring. A lot of people respond by saying, yeah, the problem with that, one of the problems, is that our whole capital system, our whole financial system would shrink. And one of the great things about America, allegedly, is we've got this vibrant financial system with this huge credit uh, market. And that's the benefit of these kind of loose – uh, encouragements to risk is that you've got all this capital available. What do you think of uh, that? Well, I don't. Th- I think that's kind of misplaced. I do think, <clears throat> and they say, for example, if you know, if we regulate too stiff, too, if we make it too hard to make a lot of money, well, some of these banks will just go elsewhere. And I'm thinking, so what? <laughs> yeah, that'd be well, good. Actually, I think. I think one of the, when I've gone to Europe, uh, actually, I was in Spain recently and at a conference of Spanish savings banks, which are deeply troubled institutions. And you can walk around Madrid and you can see all these closures. And so one of the things I asked my host, I said, well, is there any new entry? Are there any new banks taking their place? And the answer is no, it's too difficult. And I suspect, and it's pretty clear, that there are too many barriers to new banks or new financial institutions opening up. It's very hard to clear the regulatory procedure. One thing about the United States is that there is easy entry into banking. Any year you look at, there are new banks opening up, new small and medium-sized institutions. Hmm. These provide credit to lots of small and medium-sized enterprises across the country. That tells me that you know our system will would remain vibrant, even if you had the kind of reforms we're talking about, because there's an opportunity. We have certain problems because of the way we regulate banks, and other countries have a different set of problems. The different set I find in a lot of European countries is that it's hard to enter with a new firm. But that's not the problem here. So I think that there will be plenty of opportunity. There will be venture capital. There will be new, new banks, a whole range there. That I don't think is a big problem. One of the things you hear, though, is that you know, some of these so-called innovative techniques wouldn't be available uh, so in the aftermath of the crisis, people were fixated on reestablishing asset-backed securities markets. My view was they didn't work so well. They misallocated capital. Why would I want to re- resurrect them back to their old level? But that was the push. I think that push was mainly self-interested, not wise. What do you think? Well, uh, <laughs> the that's because I think people wanted a quick fix, not a permanent fix. Mm-hmm. And that's important. The markets have to find their way around. I mean, one of the problems about insuring large financial, insuring institutions and so forth is they may grow to be ungainly. They may have too many things they're trying to do simultaneously. And uh, if, let me try and give an example. Um, uh, for instance, process, uh, here's, we, we, know, we know that all the foreclosures, the processing of documents, was abysmally handled, right? Yeah, not so good. I'm sorry? Yeah, not so good. Not so good. I mean, one feels terrible for people who are housed in foreclosure and can't negotiate because the banks messed up all their documents. Yep. One of the things which we don't, it's very hard to understand exactly what all the incentives about insuring these institutions is, but if they can't fail, they're going to start absorbing all kinds of subsidiary enterprises 
which they can, which are become insured as well. And so they do every, may begin to do everything poorly. So one of the things you might see if you took away this permanent guarantee is that you might see banks becoming simpler types of institutions, which would be <laughs> the right way to proceed as opposed to the way of saying you can't do this and you can't do that, but yeah. letting them decide which set of, of things they ought to specialize in and which they ought to contract out to. Yeah, and as you said, creating the incentives for them to pick the right mix rather than the mix that Absolutely. exploits taxpayers. We're almost out of time. Let's let's close with um, with a look to the future. You've you're not a big fan of of Dodd Frank uh, in terms of its what appears to be its uh, attempts to solve some of these problems. It it really didn't do much about too big to fail, as far as I can tell. It has any teeth in it. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic that there'll be some serious useful reform, or do you think we're just going to keep going with business as usual? I tend to be a bit of a pessimist on this one, and I, I don't like being a pessimist because uh, it's at this point, well, one of the things is, first of all, Dodd-Frank really isn't in place. Right. Because they, the whatever 1,500 pages Dodd-Frank sets an outline and then delegates the agencies to figure out ways to implement the laws. <clears throat> Bizarre the example of modern legislation. It's common. I don't get right. it. And <clears throat> so well, in it. many ways, we don't know what the ultimate outcome will be. But um, I, there may be some improvements, but on the whole, it kind of props up, and as you pointed out with the asset-backed market, it props up the existing system without engaging in some uh, under some, you know, underlying uh, uh, changes. Um, are you still there? Yeah, I'm just listening to your phone. You can let it go. But I'm sorry. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> let... okay. <laughs> that was my cell phone popping. Yeah, I, know. I meant to tell you to turn it off. Keep going. So, okay. So, so we, don't have, of, we don't know how it's going to be implemented. And, and, of course, the problem with that is that the people who have the incentive to pay attention during the implementation aren't you and me. And we, we care a lot. We're, we're in the top probably 5% or maybe 1% of informed people. But we're not going to be watching when those those legislation that legislation gets put into place. Well, I think it's, I think it, you know I'm 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 quite willing to believe that the people on the committees at the Federal Reserve and all the other places are people of goodwill who have the right who who want to make the system better. The problem is they're delegated to Congress to do certain things. They're given a certain degree of discretion, and then they're subject to very large pressures. <laughs> sure. Each one of those groups. And it's going to be hard to get consistency across them. It's a very hard task. And I'm afraid that, you know, when you get increased complexity, that's the time when once you've set it in place, which allows creative entrepreneurs and their lawyers to find ways around some of the legislation which is designed to prevent problems. Okay, so... Which is, you know, that's happened before. So help me out. I'm, I'm, I'm listening at home. Um, you're... you're, you're you're talking to a listener who's jogging or doing some dishes or commuting, and you're listening to this, and basically you've just said, you know, it's going to kind of keep going the way it is. Is that it? Is that the best you can do? I mean, it's it, given the amount of, of political anger on the left and the right at the current mm -hmm. system, it's kind of striking that it's business as usual, don't you think? Um, yes, it is kind of striking, but on the same, by the same token – uh, we might argue that the political system is somewhat dysfunctional, and yet it's very difficult to reform that. Um, if we don't like how, for instance, districting, uh, redistricting hmm. every 10 years is done, that's very difficult to reform as well. Yeah. Um, the only thing I can say, in, the, in a somewhat positive note, is that the crisis has swept out a lot of rotten trees from the forest, so it's going to clear things out, and for a while we'll have a fairly stable system. The only thing is, of course, uh, firms may be hesitant to offer credit because they've been told to be tight. But uh, things should be stable for at least the medium-term future. But What's for the that? longer 18, term... Is that 18 months? How long? <laughs> <laughs> at least 18 months. Okay. At least 18 months. Because, you know, all the weaker institutions have been swept out, it gives the no sense that you do have some stability. But for the longer term, you really need long-run solutions. My guest today has been Eugene White. Eugene, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Happy to talk.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.